We've been in a series uh, this year on the foundations of the faith, and so we started by using the Apostles' Creed as an outline, kind of working through that, and today during the sermon we're going to be moving uh, into the Ten Commandments. We've talked about, uh, you know, what a Christian believes, right, what are those core doctrines we believe, and now we're going to talk about the Christian life, right, what does it look like to live as a Christian, and so um, that's what we'll be starting today, uh, but To prepare us for that, in part, we're going to, uh, for our New Testament reading today, look at Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be reading verse 17 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the Lord Jesus speaking in the midst of the the Sermon on the Mount, where he's been uh, going into various aspects of the law. Now there's a significant danger uh, for many Christians of becoming antinomians. Antinomians. An antinomian, uh, that's not a kind of medical disorder. I don't think. I didn't look it up. Um, I'm looking around to the medical professionals. I don't believe it is. I'm getting a, I'm getting a, a head shake, so it's not. Good. Right? Antinomianism. It's not a deep hatred of garden gnomes. Antinomianism. Was that too bad? It was a bad dad joke. I'm a dad, so it's acceptable. I find it enjoyable anyway. No, antinomianism. Antinomianism is a kind of soul disorder. Namas, from antinomianism, namas, it's a Greek word that means law. So antinomianism is, is to be against the law. Right? This is someone that believes that the law of God has been abrogated with the coming of Christ. They might say, look, we're told that we are under grace and not law. Therefore, all of those Old Testament commands, all of those things that came in the past, that that has no bearing upon me. Now, Jesus knew that people would think that when he preached the kingdom of heaven that had come, a new kingdom, right, his new kingdom that he was establishing, he knew that some people would hear that and think that meant Everything that came before, that's, that's all gone. That's all over. All of those laws. We don't have to follow those. We can throw it all out. But he says to them, I have not come to abolish the law. Right? He came to fulfill, not to abolish. To fulfill, not to abrogate or to make useless. So those Christians that say that because they are under grace, they don't need law, well, they're they're really not somebody that you should listen to. They're not to be trusted. Why? Well, Jesus says here that those disciples of Christ who relax his commandments 
and especially those who teach others to do the same, that they will be the least in the kingdom. Right? They will not experience the, the blessing of God, which all of Scripture makes clear, attends to his law, his word. Jesus says elsewhere, if you love him, you will what? You keep his commandments. Jesus says here in this passage that your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, when you think of the scribes and the Pharisees, you might think, well, you know, they weren't really righteous, right? They, they, they weren't righteous. They opposed Christ. And there's something to that. There's some truth to that. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they neglected uh, a lot of the law. But Jesus' point is that even they had some shred of, of maybe even just a little bit of wanting to conform to that law. Now, they added their own laws, which throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he takes to task. They added their own traditions and gave them the authority of God's word. And that was wicked. Right? They, they dismissed the weightier matters of the law. So, so they would tithe to, a, to an extreme degree. Right? Even their mint and their cumin, their spices they were tithing. But they would neglect justice. Right? They, they weren't humble. They neglected mercy. And so they neglected the weightier matters of the law. And that was to their everlasting shame. They, and they missed Christ in the law. Even though he's on every page. Right? In every piece of it, they did miss him. But still, there was a, a kind of attempt to follow the law. And Jesus, in this passage, he's not saying, forget that. Right? He knows that uh, even as he comes in and he begins to establish his own order, and as he begins to, to call out the scribes and the Pharisees, there are going to be those who say, oh, look, that means we can get rid of everything that they've ever said. That means we can get rid of all of the laws that they talk about. That's not what he says. That's not what Jesus says. No, in fact, he takes the law further. He pushes deeper with it. And he says it's not just that outward conformity where it looks like you're following the law, but your heart has to be changed as well. You need a new heart. So Jesus doesn't take away the law. His grace does not remove all obligation to the law. Instead, what he does is he changes your heart so that you can fulfill the law. Now, not perfectly. When you hear the word fulfill, you might think, oh, so I will live my life from this point on, you know, perfectly. No, no not to fulfill it in, in terms of uh, the legal side of things, right? Every little piece of it. Not, not to perfectly obey it in legal terms. But as Thomas Watson, the Puritan minister, said... In a true gospel sense, we may so obey the moral law as to find acceptance. Right? Not, not for satisfaction, but for acceptance. That our, our master, who is our master, who we already belong to, we, he may say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? So that our father in heaven would be proud of us. Because of the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, because of the fulfillment of the law in Christ, where now the, the penalty of the law, the condemnation of the law has been taken away, that has been dealt with and 
removed. Because of that, you can actually obey it in such a way to please God. And whenever you come up short, there Christ is, filling it out. Right? There, there's not a concern, there's not a, a worry about condemnation any longer. But there should be a desire within us to love God. And how do you do that? You love him by following his word. He says not an iota or an iota. We sometimes say iota. The Greek would be iota because it's a Greek letter. Not a dot. Or maybe if you have an older translation, not a jot or a tittle. Right? That is to say not the smallest letter of the law. In Greek, that would be an iota. It looks kind of like a little I. Or in the Hebrew, it would be the yod, which looks almost like a, just a little apostrophe. Right? Not the smallest letter of the law as it's written. Not even the smallest little, little pointing, the littlest, uh, littlest brush stroke on one of the letters even. None of that will pass away, he says, until all has been fulfilled. All has been accomplished. So as we come to the law, as we come to the Ten Commandments, as we come to the law of God, if we feel uh, uncomfortable with that law, then we want to acknowledge that the problem is with us. The problem is with our heart or, or, or our understanding. It's not with the law itself. The problem would be with our attitude as opposed to the law because this is actually a blessing. We've talked in the past. This is, this is love. This is the love of God, the freedom of God that he gives to us. It's a blessing. And so we want to take it as such. We'll continue talking about this during the sermon. So scripture reading today is Exodus chapter 20. And we'll really be focusing on just two verses. We'll be here a while in Exodus 20. But I'm going to read the whole chapter just to give us the fuller context of the passage. So uh, Exodus 20, you can find it uh, in your pew Bibles on page 61. Give you a moment to turn there if you want to follow along. Beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to them, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus, shall, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Now, when we come to a passage like this, very well known, um, no doubt you have heard it many times, we bring a lot of presuppositions to the text. And some of them might not allow us to actually understand what is being said and what God desires for us from these words. We carry with us a lot of baggage that might make it hard for us to hear God speak to us from Sinai. The Ten Commandments are so well known, and yet so little known. So let me frame them maybe a little bit differently than you've heard before, so that that hopefully we can put some of those things aside that might, you know, blind us a little bit, so that we can hear God speaking. The people of Israel came out of Egypt, and then they went on quite a journey. It was quite a while before they came to Sinai. It was about three months. Chapter 19 tells us that it was on the third new moon, the third phase of the moon. So we're looking at about three months, roughly. And they finally came to the mountain where they were told to go and worship God. Once there, the Lord spoke to them from the mountain... But Moses did not ascend the mountain, and he was told not to ascend the mountain just yet. It wasn't until the third day that the Lord told him to ascend the mountain in view of all the people. He then ascended to receive the words that God would give him. And we call these words the Ten Commandments, right? That's what we refer to them as. And I'm going to call them that. I'm going to say that. But technically, the text never calls them commandments. The text calls them words. That these are the words that the Lord spoke. He spoke ten words to the people. Ten times he tells them something. Now when you think about God speaking, what happens? What happens when God speaks? Think about the first place that he speaks in Scripture. 
right? What happens when God spoke? All of creation, right? All, all things came into being through his speech. When God speaks, he is creating, he is forming, and he is making. That's what his words do. So when God speaks from the mountain to Moses, out of a cloud, he is creating. In Genesis 1, we're told that God, it, it says repeatedly, it says over and over, and God said, right? Or, and, and God spoke. How many times do you think it says that in Genesis 1? Just take a guess. We're in the Ten Commandments. How many times in Genesis 1 does it say, and God said? It's ten times. So God speaks ten times with that verbiage in Genesis 1. And now the people who have been brought out of Egypt, he speaks to them ten words, ten things. Now he goes on to say more just as he does in Genesis. But specifically there are ten main things that he tells them. So what does that tell us? What does that tell us about what God is doing from Sinai? How does that reframe the Ten Commandments? Well, these these aren't just rules that are being given. They're not just some arbitrary things that God is putting down because he's just a bit controlling. These are the words of God that he speaks in order to create and make, to shape and fashion those he has now called called out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, to shape them into the kinds of people that he wants them to be. And he does it all on the third day. Right, the third day. That's important. The third day of creation was when God separated the the dry ground from the sea. He separated land from sea, and then he caused vegetation to grow on the land. This people that he has called out, they are a a new planting of the Lord, his vineyard, and being made distinct from all others, all others, the other nations that are around the way. This isn't simply, again, a list of rules. These are words that correspond to the beauty of and righteousness of the Lord himself, to his radiant glory. Right, and don't you want to know his glory, to reflect it? Aren't you in awe of his majesty? Well, that's good, because that's what the Ten Commandments are all about. When the Lord starts with his self-declaration, it tells us that this is all about him, ultimately. Now, if you are rebelling against him then that's not going to seem like a good thing, right? Then you're going to hear words that declare something of his nature, and you're not going to like it. It will, it will sound as condemnation, right? That's what it will be if you are rebelling against him, if you hate him. If you hate him, you will hate his word. But for you who have been redeemed by him, right, all you want should be him, Right? All you want should be his, his glory, his character. And so we should receive this as such. His righteousness being declared. This is a declaration of his covenantal love for you. 
right? That's, that's where all of this begins. He says, I am the Lord. That's Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. It's, it's not just a statement of his name, but that added emphasis that, that he is your God. Right? He is not uh, some unattached, far-off deity. Right? He's not the God of deism that just kind of started up everything, but he's not really knowable. He's just out there somewhere watching from a distance. No, he, he says, I am your God. Carries with it the sense of belonging. That he is yours, that you are his. God is a father. He says that Israel was his firstborn. And that's why, if you remember, God takes the life of all the firstborn children of Egypt. Why? Because they refused to give up his firstborn son. But he's not just Israel's father, right? He is your father, your God. In Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into his family. And so that means you have a home, a place to belong. You have a father. And all that that entails, if he is your God, then, then everything carries through from that point. It means you have his love. It means being a part of his household. You have some direction for your life. You have a way of life or a way to conduct yourself. You have a new name. All households have rules, right? All households have certain rules. When they don't, they really aren't households, or at least they're, they're just a place of, you know, kind of chaos. But a good household has rules, rules that are in place. Kids are given things to do, things they shouldn't do, right? They're taught how to handle themselves, right? How to eat politely at the dinner table, right? They're taught how to, how to treat their siblings, how to uh, act with respect toward those in authority over them. This is what a household is. And this is one of the ways that a father shows his love to his children. A father who loves his children disciplines them. Right? The Bible says if, if you don't discipline your children, you hate them. Right? It's a way of, of hating them. Why is that? Why would that be a kind of hatred? Well, it's because a father plays the role of shaping who a child's going to be. Right? And apart from that, that law, the discipline, the order of a household, the child would grow up to be a kind of byword, rejected by everyone, including God, if he is to live into that, if he is not saved out of that by the grace of God. But the Lord is your God, right? it means that he is your father, it means you belong to him and you are part of his household, that he orders, that he disciplines. It also means that he's a kind of new master. Right? The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, they belonged to Egypt. And the Lord brings them out specifically, he says, to serve and worship him. That's why they've come out of Egypt. So he is a, a new master. But he's not like the cruel taskmasters of Egypt. Instead, when he gives commands, they're for the benefit of his people, not to crush them. He's a master, but one who lays down his life for the sake of his servants. The kind of master that a slave would willingly serve and loves to serve. 
that he is your God speaks to the fact that you are united to him. You are his and he is yours. That's common today for someone to say that, you know, Christianity, Christianity, it's really more of a, of a relationship. It's not really about rules. Or they usually say it like this, right? Christianity, it is, it is a relationship, not a religion, right? It's not a religion, it's a relationship. But that really kind of fails to realize that all relationships are bound by rules. They're structured by certain rules. Otherwise, they, they break down. They're not really a, a relationship, right? There, there are certain social customs, written or unwritten rules, that you play into in order to have a relationship with other people, right? You have fellow church members in here, right? People that you know, that you see regularly, that you love. But if you went up after church to shake somebody's hand and they reached up and they just started to kind of pet your face a little bit, you would be thrown off, right? You would say, well, this is weird. Why? Well, because that's just, that's against the rules, right? That's not how we're supposed to interact. It's strange. It gives me uh, this feeling that I don't actually understand what our relationship is now because of how you've just acted. That's the nature of all relationships. That's a silly example, but, but you see my point, right? You see all, all relationships are like this to some extent. Marriages, families, church membership, any relationship that you are in, it's governed by certain rules, written or unwritten, right? It, rules are not antithetical to a relationship. They structure it. They, they tell you what it is. They tell you why your marriage is different than your membership in a church or than your friendship. It looks different. You know the Lord is your God, not in the absence of law, not in the absence of rules or commandments. You know it because of the commandments that he's given. Because the law expresses what a relationship to him looks like. As Christ takes it, takes the two tables of the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, he says, right, it's love God and love your neighbor. That expresses what it looks like to be in relationship with God. If there were a married man who said, you know, yeah, I'm married, but, you know, it's more of a relationship. There's not really a lot of rules involved. And so I, you know, I go home when I want, but sometimes I don't want to be at my home. So I just don't go back, right? Sometimes I go and I stay with other women, right? Yeah, I can, I can speak however I want to my wife. I just, you know, it, it's whatever I feel, whatever vibe I have at the moment. That's kind of how, what I work with, you know? I visit from time to time, but, you know, I really, I experience our relationship wherever I am. So, so I can go wherever I want. It's totally fine, right? That's obviously insane, Right? That would be absurd. How messed up would that be? Why is that messed up, though? Why would that be? It is a relationship, right? Yeah, but it, it's governed by certain rules. Right? There are certain things that make marriage what it is. And you have to live into that. You have to play your part in that. Well, the Lord is your God. And these ten words, these ten commandments... This is the, the shape of the relationship. This is what a relationship to God looks like when they're properly understood. So these words, these commands, they flow out of the character of God and, and they define for us what it means that you are God's and that he is your God, what that looks like 
in your life. But there's more than that too. There's more than that here in the preface. This is the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So these commandments flow out of the reality of what God has done for you. That you have been redeemed. That's where it starts. Again, he does not start with, here's all the things I want you to do for me. He he did not come to the people in Egypt and say, I know that you're in bondage. Here's the things I want you to do. And then I will come get you. And then we can be in a relationship. Right? Then you can serve me. Then I can be your God. No, he goes and he brings them out of Egypt. And then he says, here's what I would like you to do. Here's how I'd like you to reflect me to the nations. They flow out of the reality of redemption. He brought the people out of Egypt. Now, Egypt is is Egypt, right? They they were brought out of actual Egypt. Uh, But Egypt is also representative of the world as a whole as it is in rebellion to God. This is the rebellious people of mankind. This is... This is the world as it is established against God and his kingdom. The people of God are brought out of that, separated from it. Israel is brought out of the nations, out of the surrounding world. And just as on the third day of creation, the sea, which represents the the, the evil and chaos in a sense, something that needs to be, be, be tamed, conquered, The sea is separated from the land, from the dry ground. So here, God is is making a distinction between the nations, between Israel and everyone else. These are his people. No one else any longer. These are his people. This means that part of the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to make known the holiness of his people. That is to say the, the, the distinction between them and everyone else, those who belong to God and those who don't. And God establishes the people through these words, making them distinct, a people that's separate. This is how he makes you distinct. You are not to be like the rest of the world. Because you're different. You're set apart. You're, You're holy. You've been chosen out of it. You're not to live like the kingdom of man because you belong to the kingdom of heaven. You're not to live like those unbelievers who stumble around through life from one vain thing to another, from one sin to another. You have been called out and that should be evident in how you live. Now holiness, it's not a matter of thinking that you're better than other people, looking down your nose at others. That's not what holiness is about. In fact, if you know anything about how God works, right, when he makes a distinction, when he, when he, when he takes two things and, and breaks them apart into, into difference, right, when he takes one thing, I should say, breaks them apart, right, here you have Israel and Egypt, they're all together, but he, he brings them apart, right, when he does that, God's, God's cutting in two, it almost always is meant so that there would be a reunion of the two, right? So that those things would come back together, right? Adam, and, Adam is, is put to sleep and, and part of him is taken out of him, right? But not so that it would remain 
away from him so that there would be a complete distinction, but so that in that distinction, those two would come back together and be fruitful and multiply and glorify God, become one again. The same thing is supposed to be true of Israel, that Israel is divided, right? And God divides. This is what God's word does, right? The, the word of God is, is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. What does it do? It divides, But why does it divide? It doesn't divide to kill and obliterate and destroy. It divides so that something new can be made. Something new can be brought back together. And that's the plan with Israel. That that they are made distinct from the nations so that they can be a light to the nations. So that they can be reunited to the rest of the nations by faith. That, That was the goal. Holiness has more to do with who you represent in the world. That's what holiness is about. The way that you live reflects who you worship. If the bad behavior of children reflects on parents, which it does, right? And parents feel that, right? When your children misbehave, you feel like, oh, what did I do, right? And it's not always your fault, but you feel that responsibility because you know, yes, this this does reflect somehow on me. Well, if that's true, then how much more is it true that the the lives of the children of God reflect on him? How much more would your behavior reflect the nature of the God that you follow? Well, then if God is to be held up as holy, if we are to say that he is the, the, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, he is so much further beyond any other thing that claims deity, that claims power, Right? He is transcendent. He is holy, holy, holy. He is so different. He is creator. And everything else is creature. Everything else was made, but he was not made. If that's true, then that should be reflected in the people that follow him. That should be reflected in your lives. You've been brought out of Egypt, so you must not live like the Egyptians. The Israelites wouldn't learn this lesson, by the way. At least not, not right away. They're warned not to, to live in the way of the nations around them, to be distinct and holy, but they don't. They, they end up doing exactly what the other nations do. They go into the land of Canaan, and they become much like the Canaanites. And so what does God do? Well, he says, if you want to be indistinguishable from the nations then you will be, right? And he sends them into exile by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, right? They're put right in the heart of the world, right in the midst of the world with no distinction made any longer. John Calvin says this, he says, if unbelievers behave like runaway horses, if they overflow with superstitions and dissipate their life, indeed, it is because they have no bridle, God has not retained them as his servants. To to live according to God's word, and thinking especially about these words that he gives us here in the Ten Commandments, is to show who we belong to. To live without that is to show that you don't belong to him. right? That he has not retained them as his servants, he says. So the commandments are given to understand holiness. And in so doing, they make known who it is that you belong to. 
That's the point. Well, there's one more piece to the preface that we haven't covered. Right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then there's a kind of repetition out of the house of slavery. It's not just that you've been made distinct from the world to declare God's holiness. It's also that you have been redeemed. That is the central context in which these commandments are given. You have been brought out of slavery, out of bondage. And in Israel's case, this this had a physical component. They were physically slaves, but there was also a spiritual component. They were spiritually slaves as well, in a kind of spiritual bondage. Just like you. Right? It is a spiritual bondage that God has brought you out of. The exodus was always pointing to the greater exodus from slavery to sin and slavery to Satan that Jesus Christ brought about for you. And this is where we often mess it up. Right? You've been taught by the world around you a kind of, of libertinism. We live in a, in a libertine culture. And so it's through that lens often that we think of law, rule, commandment. We hear those words, and I think, I could be wrong, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think most of us in here probably hear them, and it sounds instantly negative. There's an instant negative connotation. We think that law and rule or commandment, that that necessitates some kind of slavery, some kind of bondage. It's often understood that freedom means that we are not being constrained by anything outside of us. That's what true freedom is. There's nothing outside of me that that binds me in any way or constrains me in any way or, or, or directs what I choose in given situations. But Israel was brought out of bondage. Not to bondage, out of bondage. In our culture, because of that, because we think that that, that law, the commandments, that's, that is slavery, we say, okay, well, there should, we should just remove all of those things, right? We should, we should take them away. Marriage, marriage, that's just something, it's so, there's so many, you know, constraints, so many rules that I have to follow. So what we should do, we should do free love. Doesn't free love sound better? It says free and love in it. Isn't that better? Isn't that better for us? That's what we've said as a culture. But is that freedom? Ask the porn addict. Ask the woman who's 35 and alone with the baggage of dozens of sexual partners. Ask the children of divorced parents. Ask the aborted children. Right, the, the nature of that kind of freedom, it's free, but it's not freedom. It's, it's actually a kind of slavery. It's a kind of bondage. The nature of worldly freedom is slavery. Right? Someone might say, well, I'm free. I, I should be free. I should be free to uh, just use any kind of drugs that I want. Right? That, that's freedom, right? I should be free. But then they do it, and what happens? They become trapped by it. Right? It becomes slavery to them. You're told that you can be freely whoever you want to be. Anything you want to do, anything you want to be, you can do it. But then you become trapped in an unending scramble to just be like everyone else. 
right? Because there's no, there's actually no freedom in the void. Freedom always comes within boundaries. It's the only way freedom can exist. The world's freedom is slavery. But the sinful heart pushes against that, right? Just like Milton's Satan, we would say, no, it's better that I reign in hell than serve in heaven, right? Because I want to be free. But of course, that is no freedom. There's no freedom in everlasting fire. True freedom comes from constraint. And most specifically, true freedom comes from living according to the word of God, living according to his will. Because the, the world around you and you yourself were made by his word as he spoke as he said 10 times let there be and so to consistently live within that right to be free in that medium is to live according to his 10 words true freedom is given in jesus christ and it's shown forth it's made visible it's seen in his law true freedom looks like living according to the law of god right what does it look like to be free if you imagine what freedom looks like it actually looks like this it looks like obeying the revealed will of god that's how you can truly be free the lord has freed you from bondage right you've been brought out of bondage not to new bondage but to true freedom that's why he gives his law the law of god then is not meant to crush you it might if you're in rebellion to him right if you are in sin the law will feel to you a condemnation because it is it does condemn our sin right but when in faith you've trusted in christ it should not be something that crushes you it's rather a good gift from your father it's made to benefit you. It is God ordering his household that you might live in it and thrive in it and grow up healthy and strong. It's made to benefit you so that you by it could be blessed. What are we told in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who, what, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That's where blessing is found. So to sum it all up, right, to bring it all together, and this is just the start. Right, we're now going to move into the actual commandments over the next few months. Not next week. Next week we have a, a guest preacher, Ben Leatherberry, is coming from Eau Claire to preach. But following that, we'll, we'll start working through each of these commandments. But to sum up all of this, this kind of foundation that we want, moving into the commandments, whereas we often see these commands through uh, almost purely legal terms, right? a judge giving the law, and that's that is the case that is that is here and we should see that what we want to add to that is that these words are also a, a creator carefully creating right a creator making his creation forming his creation right? these words are a gardener tending his vineyard a father ordering his household and a sign of who you belong to and what kind of master he is this is the revelation the giving of freedom 
the expounding of God's love and the breathing of life into the people of God. The Lord is your God. He has redeemed you. And he he has given his will for your life. So then, like the psalmist, we want to say, I love it. I love the law of God. We, We want to delight in the law of God. And we want to order our lives according to it. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we do pray that as we've read your word, as we've heard your word, that you would help us to receive it. That as you speak in order to shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ, that you would do just that. That you would convict us of sin as it's needed. And then direct us. Show us the the way that Christ himself walked. And help us to follow him. We need your grace, Father God. We need the power of your spirit to be at work in us. So we ask that you would accomplish these things. That you would do these things in us. That you would carry them out to completion. That you may be glorified. That you may be held up as holy throughout all the world. We pray.